Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about upgrading modern leadership and company culture for more mindfulness, compassionate communication, and joy. My first guest is my friend, Rich Sheridan, and I am so happy to have him back on the show. Richard Sheridan is CEO, co-founder, and chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations, which has won the When Work Works Award for 11 straight years and five revenue recognitions from Inc. Magazine. Menlo and Rich have been featured on the cover of Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, and New York magazines. He frequently speaks around the world at business conferences and to major corporations such as Mass Mutual, Adobe, Nike, and Intel. He lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and today he is in the house with me, and I'm pretty happy about that. Hey, Rich, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Lisa. Oh, it is. Well, let's go have some fun here because we're talking about your new book, Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. Let's jump in here because you and I were talking before we got started on the recording about fear. And, and I said, I'm not so sure that you can ever eliminate fear. And then you came back at me and, and made a good point about leading with fear in a corporate climate. Yeah, the kind of fear that I tend to focus on from a leadership perspective, and I was taught how to do this at an early managerial age, was how to motivate people using fear tactics. And it could be as simple as a raised eye in a conference room. It could be, um, uh, you know, boss coming by saying, hey, Lisa, how's it going? What you working on? Are you almost done? Are you coming in this weekend? All those things that elevate our blood pressure, our adrenaline, cortisol levels, but really shut us down as human beings. And so uh, the kind of fear I want to eliminate is the fear we create artificially to motivate others because I don't think it's useful. No, I, I I agree. In fact, it does it does just the opposite. Mm-hmm. It it shuts us down. You are in a culture with the work that you do of broadcasting joy to large corporations. How have you seen the landscape shift with the work that you do? It's clear when my first book came out, which had the words joy and love on the cover, and I had the audacity to release a business book to the world with those words on it, uh, you know, that the world was desperate for a message like this. I didn't even know if I'd be taken seriously, and the uptake on the message has been so strong. Uh, you know, people inviting me to speak around the world into their corporations and so on, and then the actual interactions around this topic are powerful. And it's clear people want to improve their work lives dramatically. 
Well, you know, here's here's the funny thing about it. If we are not able to bring joy and love into the work that we do, or I would say the work that we make, right, what we create, mm-hmm. then we better find something else to do. True enough. You know, and of course, that old quote of, uh, you know, people lead lives of quiet desperation uh, is so true at work and so costly. Yeah. Let's talk about the difference between bosses and leaders, because there is a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I was very clear in the book uh, because uh, there was a early on. I think as I was writing, there was potentially a theme that would come out that would say bosses are bad and you should avoid them, and leaders are good and you should embrace them. But in fact, there are good bosses and bad bosses, and there are good leaders and there are bad leaders. The difference is what tools, what things do they have at their disposal? And bosses have something leaders don't. It can be just simply, I tell you to do something, you do it because I said it. I'm the, I'm the boss. Bosses live in a unique territory. They sometimes have some grand responsibility that others don't carry. There's no question as CEO and co-founder of Menlo, you know, I carry some fiduciary responsibility. I carry some legal responsibility. There are things that land on my desk that will land on no others uh, because of role, title, and legal authority. Leaders, on the other hand, and bosses can also be leaders, have one significant tool at their disposal, but it's harder to learn how to use, and it's influence. How do I get others to follow me in a way that engages not only their hands, but their hearts and their minds? And I think that's the thrust of the book. Uh, well, isn't that by being being that change, you know, walking the talk? Absolutely. There's no question that the, if you are a leader, your followers are watching you every minute. Uh, that there is, you know, you are you are under a microscope to a certain degree. And, you know, it's the old adage. People aren't going to do what I say. They're going to watch what I do. And as the chief joy officer in your world, how does that trickle down to the people on your team? I, I want to be clear here that uh, this idea of joyful leadership isn't a, a title, a position in, a, in an office next to the CEO and the head of HR or something like that. I, I think you can have chief joy officers anywhere in the organization, just as you can have leaders anywhere in the organization. This isn't like... You arrive and you don't get to be a leader until later. You can lead kind of from day one if you engage people in the right way. And so for me, this idea is there's a certain set of um, leadership values you want to carry with you that I talk about in the book. And then some leadership practices. Uh, How do you build this culture of joyful leadership? Well, let's talk about those practices. You know, you go into an organization and you're told, that's not how we do things around here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's up with that? How do you yeah, challenge that? that? <laughs> you know, I actually have a very specific challenge and I actually arm people with this. And it's been amazing how it's worked. It's actually blown me away as how well this has worked. And I've got some uh, really neat examples of this uh, in major corporations. But let me give you the setup first. And that is. When I get done speaking, and I can typically, uh, as a public speaker, I, I bring a lot of passion, a lot of experience, a lot of enthusiasm for the message, and I can get people in front of me pretty fired up. And fired up enough and inspired to actually start evoking change when they get back to their offices. But I warn them ahead of time. I said, I know what's going to happen. 
you know, you, you heard me, you talked to a colleague, you maybe, if I was at a conference, you had some other side session that really inspired you. And now you have some new ideas, right? And you're going to take them back to the office and you know, what's going to happen. You're going to walk in the door. You're going to meet somebody who hasn't been there. You're going to look them in the eye and say, I've got this great new idea. <laughs> and that other person's going to look and say, well, that won't work here. That's against policy. That's not how we do things here. And I warn them, I say, you know, right in that moment, they're all kind of laughing because they're like, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen, right? And I say, look them in the eye and say, yep, I get it. But let's try it first before we defeat it. Let's run the experiment. And armed with that simple response, you can open up a whole world of saying, yeah, maybe we should go to an action orientation from a contemplation orientation. Maybe we shouldn't have a meeting to discuss a policy to implement a new procedure. Maybe we should just go try something. I love it. Like ex- run the experiment. Like I think it, it's it's disarming, right? Because Yeah. Because you're like, it's an experiment, right? It might not work. Of course, you know, if we're, if we're really good about running experiments, half of them should fail. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. You know, run the experiment. And this, this can permeate into all areas of life. I mean, it's not just for the office. I mean, when we think about how our families run the dynamics between ourselves and our children and other loved ones, you know, we can run a lot of experiments and we should be. Yes. It's how we grow. It's how we learn. It is. Let's talk about joyful leadership and how Menlo approaches systems thinking and caretaking, learning, loving, storytelling, everything that you do over there. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> yeah. It, well, the first thing I talk about is it, people often want to talk about culture. And I always remind them, as most everybody common sense wise understands, Every organization has a culture. Some are default. Who did we hire? What behaviors do we tolerate? What, what attitudes walked in the door today? And that's our culture. And those can work. Uh, but trouble is when those break, nobody knows how to fix them because nobody knew what made it work in the first place. And they're typically personality driven, uh, not values driven. Whereas an intentional culture you can, anyone should be able to speak directly to the intention of the culture. And what I encourage people to do in their own organizations is think hard about purpose driven culture and that purpose being externally focused and simply by uh, somewhat provoking them to answer two seemingly simple questions. They're not as easy to answer as you think. Um, whom do we serve? And what would delight look like for them? And now it now it's got us looking outside of ourselves, actually, in my view, past our customers, past our investors and past our employees, because ultimately most organizations actually serve people who don't pay them for what they do. Uh, you know, they, they provide a service that gets bought by a company or something like we do. We build design and build software for a living. But the people we serve are people who will one day use the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. People who don't pay us for what we do don't ever typically meet us because we're engaged by somebody to build a new internal business application. Mm-hmm. And yet you show up at work one day and you start using it. And our goal is to delight you. Well, I think the word delight 
is so such a juicy, good word, you know, and to bring delight back to all that we do, you know, is I think it's why we exist as human beings and it's what engages us at work. Look, every one of us, I think, no matter what we do wants to believe that at the end of the day, when we've completed some piece of work, when we got something meaningful done, there's somebody else that says, you know what? Thank you. I love that. I love what you did. I mean, that's what gives us joy at work. This isn't about beanbags and ping pong tables and beer 30s. And that's <laughs> the thing, right? I mean, those things can be fun, but that's not where joy is derived from. I believe joy is derived from serving others. I agree. I mean, I, I, 500% agree. And I've been doing the work that we do over here for many, many years, it is the joy, the delight is in serving others and the connection that we make in the process. And I think that's what's so powerful about your approach as, you know, through storytelling also. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, uh, you know, and it's kind of funny how that evolved. We do tours here at Menlo. We get three to 4,000 people a year who fly in from all over the world now to come see how we do what we do because it's such a unique approach to our business. And of course, on those tours, people want to hear our stories. You know, they first ask, how do you even think of this? Where did this come from? Why do you do things this way? Because there's so many different unusual ways we do things. And then they, we finally get the culture and they, they look at us and they say, okay, so you've got intention. We get that. And you've got these two questions. We get that. But how do you propagate? How do you maintain? How do you, how do you keep this culture alive for years into the future? And that's where I start backing up into storytelling. Yeah. And, and I reflect on the fact that I think, you know, human civilization learned over time that the way you propel forward tribes, communities, and nations is through the stories we curate. We tell the stories that are most important from our history, from, from our, both our aspirations and also from our fears, right? What were things that happened in the past that we're going to tell over and over again so they don't happen again, right? And I think this is central to humanity. And if we can tap into that in our business organizations, and it is the thing that connects our hearts to a message, yeah. not just our minds. And so eventually doing all these tours, the team would overhear my storytelling uh, because when you do it enough, you get pretty good at it. And they finally dubbed me chief storyteller. It's actually on my business card now. And I thought it was playful at first. I thought it was kind of fun and we're a little bit weird and irreverent about standard business practices. So it made sense to have CEO and chief storyteller on my business card. But at a certain point, it dawned on me, this is as CEO, this is probably my most important role. Wow. Love this. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Richard Sheridan. He is the author of Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. To learn more, please head over to the website, menloinnovations.com slash joy inc slash on Twitter. You can find Rich at Menlo Prez and that's Prez with a Z. We'll be right back and we're going to Come back, and I'm going to ask Rich to talk about the weird. <laughs> Here comes the tune. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about how to upgrade modern leadership and company culture for greater mindfulness, compassionate communication, and you know what? Happiness. My guest is Rich Sheridan, and let's return to the conversation. So, Rich, before the break, we were talking about your role as chief storyteller at Menlo Innovations. But now I want to ask you about some of the practices over there, you know, of keeping it weird. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Somebody long ago, a good friend who came in to visit uh, dubbed us uh, whimsical and irreverent. And uh, that stuck in my head because I like that. We're 17 years old. Uh, so we've been doing this a while. We still exist in just one big open room. It's a pretty big room now, about 25,000 square feet. No walls, offices, cubes, or doors. Uh, we have a few glass wall conference rooms so we can have quiet conversations like this. I'm out in the middle of the room with everybody else at the same five-foot table. They actually put me in uh, in receptionist position these days, so it's kind of fun. I'm the nearest table to the front door. So we get visitors who will walk in. Uh, We don't have an official receptionist. uh, So they'll walk in, they'll kind of look around, they see I'm close to the front door, they'll walk up to me and start talking. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, you're the CEO, aren't you? (laughs) Kind of freaked somebody out yesterday when they found that out because they don't expect the CEO to make himself that available. So that's one of the weird things we do. We run daily stand-up meetings with plastic Viking helmets. I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, we have dogs. That's probably not that unusual, but it's certainly joyful for us to have uh, those creatures of unconditional love wandering around the place. I always want to be the person my dog thinks I am. And, um, and babies. Uh, we, uh, ah. we invite parents of newborns. It's not a requirement yet uh, to uh, bring their babies into work all day, every day. It's not daycare. Uh, The the child is actually with the parent uh, unless the parent hands them off to a team member, uh, which they often do. And uh, the babies come in at about three months old, stay all day, every day for about three months. So usually from about three months old to six months old, uh, we have babies in the office. We just had Josiah and Flynn here at the same time uh, for a couple of months, and uh, it's delightful. We've had 22 Menlo babies in the last 11 years. Wow, that is so cool. You know, and everybody's happy around a baby. You cannot be in a bad mood. You know, we found our customers actually behave better when there's a baby here at Menlo. <laughs> well, that's that's the good weird. You know, I like that. I mean, I like these. These are creative ways of making team members feel, you know, valued and, and a part of. And that's just cool. Yeah, some of the other weird things we do, uh, uh, the pay levels here are public, so everybody knows what everybody makes. There's no secrets around that. Uh, We have no bosses, per se, so uh, if you want to get a raise here, you have to... uh, uh, you have to engage with your peers and they will make that decision around you. Uh, and then you move up from one level to the next and you make more money. Uh, but it's all peer evaluation. And uh, we have a strange interview process where we don't ask any questions during the interview. And we really don't look at resumes except to kind of sort you into uh, the right kind of role. Um, and uh, uh, we call it an extreme interview. We're going to have one of those next Wednesday. It's actually intriguing enough to be a spectator event. We actually get visitors who come in and just want to watch our interview process. I want to watch. 
I'm come on, get on a plane, get over here. That is so cool. So like what goes on in an extreme interview? And it's not like, tell me why you want to work here, right? It's like, oh, no, there's no questions. It's really cool. Um, what we do is we make it an audition. Okay? So one of the weird things we do is we work in pairs all day, every day. Uh, so two people paired together, doing work together, sharing work, not here, come help me with my work. This is our work together, uh, sharing a keyboard and a mouse. Uh, the pairs are assigned and we switch them every five working days. So that's our work style is to work two to a computer, uh, shoulder to shoulder in a big open room. So it's a noisy environment, which again is weird. But because of this strange way of working, we figured a standard interview process, which I now cynically describe as two people sitting across the table lying to each other for a couple of hours, which, <laughs> which is the way I used to interview in the past. What we do now is we, so next Wednesday, 22 people will arrive around four o'clock in the afternoon. We'll do a little bit of intro and then we will pair them off with another interview candidate. We tell them what we're looking for are good kindergarten skills, make your partner look good, and that each person's goal as they're paired is to help the other person sitting next to them, who, by the way, is competing for the same position, help them do well enough so they get a second interview. Oh, so cool. You know what? You're creating a culture of what matters. You know, like what matters most, like decency, civility, kindness, compassion, empathy, connection, not seeing yourself as separated from the other. Yeah, my daughter looked at our interview practice one time and she was she had been out in the work world for a few years at this point. And she said, wow, dad, you actually want people to succeed in your interviews. And I smiled and I said, yeah. And she said, I've never been in an interview like that. Every one of them always felt like they were trying to trick me, trying to get me to fail so they could sort me out of the program rather than sort me in. Yeah. Wow. And where's your daughter now? What's she doing? Is she (laughs) She, with you? (laughs) Interestingly enough, uh, sort of. She is currently gone back to get a master's degree at the University of Michigan. Her main building is about a block from our office. And so she's regularly here. All three of my daughters have worked for us at one time or another. Uh, and uh, you might imagine we've set a pretty high mark bar in their head for what kind of workplace they want to work at. Yeah. Well, isn't here. Or they'll have to go out and create their own, you know? Absolutely. I mean, our kids don't really want to work with us full time. I know mine don't, you know, they'll come around, they'll do a little something, something for me, you know, you know, something that needs to be done, but they're like, uh, really mom, this happiness <laughs> stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, a lot of eye rolling over here. I don't know about your, your kids, but I, I definitely have some eye rollers. They're good kids and they have these values that we're talking about. It's within them, but yep. you know, they, they need to, to blaze their own trails. Mine are older now. They're uh, 34, 32, and almost 30. And so they've been out in the real world long enough to now see some of the wisdom that we practice here at Menlo than than maybe they would have when they were younger. Yeah, mine are younger, 19 and 21. So there's there's still some eye rolling and death staring going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wait till they find out that what you've been talking about all these years, they're going to want to go back and say, so what were those interviews I should be listening to that you kept telling us about? It's true. It's true. It's happening. My my older child, is, my daughter is a psych major and she's uh, taking a positive psychology course right now. She's in her senior year and she's like, oh, my God, mom, I knew all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and let's face it, there might be some reason she was drawn to that program. Do you think? 
Yeah, just maybe a little bit. I open up the book, Chief Joy Officer, and I happen to have my thumb on page 23. The word authentic is what is beaming out at me. Mm -hmm. And Carl Jung's quote, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are, which is also reminiscent of um, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think has me so drawn to, to your work. You know, that, that authenticity is a form of currency. Mm -hmm. And rare currency at that. Yeah. Like, you know, just to, to let your freak fly in a good way. And I, I, I mean that with reverence and yep. delight. And it took me a long time to get there personally that I could be who I am at work because I think most of us are taught that you can be one way at work and then the rest of your life you can be whatever you want to be. And of course, that's who we truly are. And yet, if we end up living a lie most of our waking hours, which would be true if we were a different person at work than we are at home, uh, we're going to have to do something, self-medicate, uh, find some, some escapism route, because humans don't live lies well. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that the, the ability to be who we truly are, to show up and be continuous, you know? continuity in, in the way we present that who, who you see at home is who you see at the office is who you see in line at TSA at the airport, you know, when the line is an hour long, that they're congruent. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I, I mean, it might be my personal wiring, but boy, it sure makes life living a whole lot easier. Yeah. Even if you remember like, oh, what am I supposed to be like in this situation? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Talk about caring for the team. I mean, I have a feeling that Everybody that works over at Menlo Innovations feels as though they are truly cared for. I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to I'm always careful to not make too many assumptions about everything that happens here. But if you spent a day here, which I hope you get to someday, uh, many people do, uh, you see this remarkable caring for one another. Part of it is, and for us, I think uh, we're with Patrick Lencioni, where he said teamwork is the ultimate competitive advantage because it is so powerful and so rare. Right? Yeah. A lot of people give lip service to teamwork, but they don't really have teams of people who can confidently and comfortably work shoulder to shoulder with one another without sort of innuendo and backfighting and all that kind of stuff, right? And so one of the ways we get to that equation, though, is to spend time with one another. Uh, we don't, you know, we're very paradoxical in terms of where our industry has gone over the last many years. We work in one room together. We work shoulder to shoulder. We're not virtual. We don't put earbuds in our ears. We're, we're present. We're with each other all day long. Uh, we're, we're talking to each other uh, from one end of the day to the other. And then by switching these pairs, we're giving our team a chance to build relationships across the team so they can truly get to know one another. And it is in that uh, building of relationships that trust begins to form and when trust is there long enough, you start to feel safe with the people around you. And when you feel safe, teamwork begins to emerge. And then you get the, 
the natural benefits of humanity, which is creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation, which is what every company on the planet wants right now. But I don't think you get any of that unless they care for each other, care about and care for each other. And uh, there's been some wonderful examples here of how that has played out uh, both professionally, you know, how do I make sure you succeed if you're not? And, and personally, when stuff is going on outside of work and people step up to care for that other person. I have a feeling I'm going to be playing, making a visit over there to Menlo Innovations. I want to see what you guys do. I want to see that big room, which in my mind feels like it's one big productive playpen. It it is. I mean, you know, people come here and they often step in the door with them if it's the first time they come because I want to hear it. They walk in the front door and I listen. It's almost universal. They go. Wow. Because they can actually feel the palpable human energy of our space. People in conversation with one another, working shoulder to shoulder. Maybe a dog's going to run up, greet them. Maybe there's a sound of a baby off in the distance. It is at once, it feels a little bit chaotic just in terms of that. But when you dive in and you start looking at the pieces and parts, it's incredibly structured and organized. And it is a series of systems that are operating one within another uh, that uh, actually get a, rid of a lot of the negative ambiguity that causes people anxiety because they don't know what their first priority is or what they're what, what they should be working on next. We we push that ambiguity off the table so they can deal with the really fun ambiguity of how am I going to solve this problem? You know, I've got this person sitting right next to me who can help me with that. Love it. We're out of time. Listeners, please go on over to menloinnovations.com slash joy inc slash to learn more about the amazing work of Richard Sheridan, his company, his books. The book we're talking about today is the newest chief joy officer, how great leaders elevate human energy and eliminate fear to connect with rich. Please do so on Twitter at Menlo Prez. And that Prez is with a Z rich. Are you absolutely must pretty please come back and hang out with me some more i would love it this has been a great conversation did you know that happiness is actually good for your health happy people live longer are more productive and make better partners parents and professionals connect with us on facebook at harvesting happiness and follow lisa on twitter at lisa cayman for a daily dose of inspiration Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about modern leadership and creating a company culture that is more mindful, more compassionately communicative, and I dare say even more joyful. My next guest is Mark Lesser. Mark Lesser is a CEO, mindfulness teacher, executive coach, author, and speaker. He is internationally recognized for pioneering work in mindful leadership, creating exceptional business cultures, and supporting profound well-being. He is the co-founder of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute at Google. His book, which I am super excited to talk with him about, is Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us on the show. 
Thank you, Lisa. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to be holding this book, which is so beautifully endorsed by incredible luminaries such as Rick Hansen, James R. Doty, Peter Coyote, Jack Kornfeld. And in my hands, I'm holding a little guidebook to, uh, I think, a more satisfying life. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I feel incredibly lucky, blessed in this lifetime. I, I have to say, I yeah, I can just hardly believe, you know, like, what did I do to deserve this life that I have? And anyhow, thank you. It's um, appreciate your your support here. Well, let's talk about the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, because many people don't know that this resides at Google. Well, just to just to be completely clear, it it was um, it originated at Google, and I was kind of lucky enough. It was amazing my my kind of dumb luck in terms of uh, timing. This was about oh, it goes back now about thirteen years. I was doing some executive coaching at Google. I was working working with some senior uh, leaders there, and I got a call one day by a from a Google engineer, and asked if I was interested in helping to develop a mindfulness program inside of Google. And as far as they'd gotten was they had the name and the name was going to be a uh, search inside yourself. And it was kind of a joke since Google's a, a search company <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was like, Oh, and by the way, there's no budget for, for this uh, program. And I was like, Oh, there's some, there's some, this is kind of paradoxical. This is Google and mindfulness and no budget. And I was like, sure. That dream come true, right? (laughs) (laughs) I ended up working with a Google engineer and a Stanford neuroscientist and a few other people. And we just started kind of experimenting and developing a mindfulness, emotional intelligence leadership program uh, inside of Google. And little by little, it became more and more popular. In fact, word spread within Google about this program and it became crazy popular to the point where when the program was announced that it was available for, for anyone inside of Google to take it, it would fill up and within literally within 45 or 60 seconds. And we needed to find a way to, to scale it and make it more available for more people inside of Google. And then at some point, um, we decided it was time to bring it outside of Google and created a, we created a, an organization called the nonprofit, uh, a nonprofit called the Search Inside Yourself Leadership uh, Institute, which has been uh, spreading, spreading this work around, around the world. And when we talk about teaching mindfulness to a bunch of techno geeks, <laughs> what does that look like for you? You know, it's interesting. One of the expressions that I find myself using is that, um, you know, the, the dirty little secret of the business world is it's all human beings. Yes. And, and, and yes, these, you know, techno geeks and yes, these people that I got to, got to work with inside of Google are super smart and, but they're also super sincere human beings with all of the, you know, same aspirations, pains, traumas, difficulties, loves, lives that we human beings have. And it's not, you know, that, um, and, and I think one of the things that 
there's a revolution going on right now, I, I think, which is this idea th that supporting our humanness inside of businesses is actually a really important positive thing. And that for, for, for many years, the model inside of companies was this idea that we needed to uh, take out, you know, take out the, the human element and, and this, this kind of subtle sense of that people are, are basically like, like machines, like cogs and wheels and, and let's keep the feelings and emotions out of it. It's interesting. I recently, I just did a program a couple of days ago in Los Angeles, uh, at a big health insurance company. One of the real ahas of this program, kind of teaching mindfulness, inside of companies is the hunger for people to connect with each other, the hunger for people to move beyond always being in a, in a role or only being in a role. And of course, we need to be in roles, but we also need to be able to connect in a more human way. We need each other. Yeah. You know, you and I spoke of that before we started <laughs> the interview. We, we absolutely need and depend on one another for our well-being, for our aliveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, this is one of those great paradoxes that, of course, we need, we need our independence. We need, to, we need to know what we as individuals, we as individuals are important. And at the same time, there's no such thing also as being, you know, this, this individual. We, we're, so, we're so connected influenced by others and, and, and influence others. And people, people get to experience that when you allow people just to have a, have a real conversation with another person and notice how, how much we're influenced by the quality of the other person's listening, the quality of their curiosity influences how we show up. We've teased enough. I'd love to give the seven practices of a mindful leader before we push on in the conversation and learn about your roots at the Zen Monastery Kitchen. So what are those seven practices of a mindful leader? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I love these seven practices and I, I did the moment that I first heard them and they're, they're, they're both um, very, very practical and they're also kind of poetic and aspirational. So the seven practices, love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, connect with your pain, connect with the pain of others, depend on others, and keep making it simpler. Uh -huh. And and there's a way, I think, you know, the, the, the first four, love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, uh, and connect to your pain are very much about self-awareness and uh, getting to become more familiar with your own resources and intuitions and feelings. The second two, uh, connect to the pain of others and depend on others, are more about uh, relationship. And the seventh, uh, keep making it simpler, is especially in in this day and age that we live in, is a is kind of a capping, a capping practice, a capping phrase, and maybe a, a way to integrate the other six practices. The refinement, you know, to keep whittling, whittling away at the extraneous. Yeah, yeah. Do less of less of what's unnecessary and the kind of living, living more fully in this world of wonder and curiosity and mystery. 
And let's talk about the definition of a leader, because we broached that before we started talking on the show, that many of us do not perceive ourselves to be in leadership positions. But in reality, each one of us has the opportunity to be a leader every day. Yeah. And, and my definition of leadership is it's all around influence. How, how are we influencing the people around us? And with that definition, clearly we are all, we are all leaders. Uh, whether we're in a leadership role at work or not, any team that we're on, we're a leader. Any, you know, everything that we're doing in our business lives or in our personal lives, in our family lives, we influence our our parents, our children, the person at the grocery store checkout, we influence by how we show up in that, in that, what seems like a, you know, a very, you know, maybe a relatively inconsequential uh, interaction. We're still influencing. Yeah. So for the mom who is staying at home, raising young children, she may say, Oh, I'm not a leader. Well, in fact, she is a CEO of a very important organization. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, yeah. I mean, that's the, to me, that's the, um, I, I, I call that the most advanced leadership practice is, you know, raising children, uh, being involved in, in that role where we're, you know, like, what is that? What is that to be, to be a parent and be responsible for influencing the growth and development of other human beings. I mean, this is, this is huge. Without an immediate ROI, right? Cause it's a lot, <laughs> it's a long-term investment. So you don't always see the fruits of that leadership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one where, you know, it is all about connection, connection and the, the qual the quality of one's relationship and, and values. And, and I think that those qualities are, also, uh, often overlooked in the world of work, like, like to, to look at what, what are the, what are the norms and what are the assumptions that we're making here about the, the culture of our organization? How, how do we really want to be working together and how do we want to be serving our customers? Yes. I mean, in terms of leadership in the business world, how the leadership, the quality of leadership then uh, flows and expands out to the communities that we serve to the purchaser, to the client. Yeah, there's a in practice number six, uh, depend on others. I kind of talk about uh, a couple of different studies that were done uh, within Google uh, several years ago. Um, One was a study called Google. Um, Google Aristotle, in which Google really wanted to find, like, what was it that made for great teams in the work world? Why were some teams excelling and, and other teams weren't? And they, they put a lot of brain power and did a whole bunch of data collection, and, and they actually struggled to find the answers. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Mark Lesser, and he's going to tell us about the Google Aristotle study, but we're celebrating his new book, which is Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. To learn more about Mark and his work, please visit marklesser.net. On Twitter, he's at Mark Lesser. And on Facebook, he is at Mark Lesser ZBA. Is that right? 
That's right. Well, all right. And Mark is spelled with a C, M-A-R-C. Here comes the break. <laughs> we'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. with Mark Lesser talking about modern leadership and a company culture that is more mindful, compassionate, and joyful. Let's return to that conversation. So Mark, before the break, you began talking about a study that was done at Google to decipher what the key components of leadership truly are. And the, the study was called Google Aristotle. Please fill us in. I'm, I'm eager to learn more. And uh, this was a study done where Google wanted to find out what was it that made great teams? What was it that made some teams uh, really excel and, and others not do as well? And they did, I think, more than a year of data collection and put a good deal of brain power behind it. And they were surprised. They ended up being surprised at the, at the findings. But what they unearthed was that what made for great teams was what they found were these kind of the unwritten rules of relationship with they, which they called norms that that there was a norm in these teams of of a high level of emotional intelligence uh, people felt where they they could actually be uh, open with each other they could be more tra- transparent with each other there was a level a level of vulnerability and trust amongst the team members. And those, those qualities, the qualities of uh, each person getting to speak about the same amount, that the teams weren't dominated by any one or two people, and the quality of vulnerability and emotional intelligence, these were, these were the number one factor in what made for great teams at Google. And it makes me think what you just shared about Carl Rogers decades ago, one of one of the, the I think probably the grandfather of humanistic psychology, when he talks about unconditional positive regard. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about the the practice of mindfulness, I think often left out of the conversation is that mindfulness isn't just a kind of a neutral practice; it's actually kind of cultivating. A, a level, a quality of kindness and curiosity, and and kind of giving giving people the doubt, thinking the best, think starting by thinking the best of people, uh, yeah. looking, you know, feeling and and wanting to express our own our own best selves and wanting to bring out bring out the best in others is a core part of 
of mindfulness practice. So in essence, it's a form of generosity of spirit and heart. Yeah, generosity. You know, I, I love I love that uh, that word and that practice. And and when we talk about generosity, often people think of material generosity, which maybe is is an aspect of generosity, but uh, it's more how can we be generous with our attention? Yeah. Uh, you know, with our attention, with our caring, uh, with our time. You have a background also coming from a Zen monastery kitchen. And I want to know about that part of your life and how it stitches together to the present moment. <laughs> yeah, I feel fortunate in that I got to delve really deeply into contemplative practice when I was in my 20s. I, I took a one-year leave of absence from Rutgers University in New Jersey, came to the West Coast, and that one year turned into 10 years of living at the San Francisco Zen Center. Wow. And uh, my parents, not thrilled about this, um, <laughs> but they did come around, you know, after I left and went to business school and started a, started a couple of companies. <laughs> um, but a big part of, you know, uh, my experience at the Zen Center, uh, five years was living at a place called Tassahara, which is a traditional uh, Zen monastery and turns into a resort in the, in the summertime. But I found myself uh, working in the kitchen for some time and then running, running a Zen monastery kitchen. And this was a place where, in a way, it was this aha about what work could really be. And there was something really potent about going from doing, you know, a fairly significant amount of sitting meditation practice, but then moving, moving from there into the practice of working, the practice of focusing on what we were doing, you know, in, in a pretty high pressured environment of the, of the kitchen of needing to get a high quality meals out on time and working alongside a group of others. There were, you know, in the summertime, especially there were maybe 15 or 20 people working together in this kitchen, producing, you know, gourmet vegetarian meals, much with a similar uh, kind of pr uh, pressures of, of any uh, kitchen environment. And, and it's interesting, those feel like th the first two practices of love the work and do the work. And the sense of, the sense that work could really be a kind of, uh, a kind of service and that you could really love what you were doing. And I remember wondering, like, why, why isn't everyone, why isn't, why isn't everyone integrating these attention training practices, these contemplative practices, the sense of the sense of the sense of wonder and connection with others, the sense of real kind of focus and, and working with urgency. Why isn't everyone working like this out in the in the world? And I and I decided this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to bring this sense of work out into whatever whatever I was doing and to help others be able to bring this work into their lives. And it's so necessary in, in the climate that we are living in today to bring these practices to our workplace, to our homes, to our relationships. Yeah. One of the questions I, I often get is, well, what about ethics? Because there's such a concern with, we see so much unethical 
uh, behavior happening around us. That's what makes the, the news and the headlines in the whether it's the corporate world or the political world. And I think part of mindfulness practice is becoming more and more aware of what you are really doing, thinking, influencing, and that the, the more we can shine the light of our, on our own awareness, I think the more not only generous, but the more honest, the more ethical, the more the higher the, the, the moral ground is. Now, we're always, you know, we're always going to make mistakes. Uh, it's not, it's not like this is some dreamlike solution to everything, but there is the, the very powerful, I think, uh, raising, raising consciousness, becoming more conscious as a leader. More awake. More awake. Yeah. You know, eyes wide open and heart wide open and mind wide open. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> and, and I also, you know, it's, it's also no, no accident that the, um, there's two practices of the seven that often surprise people, which is, you know, connect, uh, connect to your own pain and connect to the pain of others. So there is, even though there's this sense of great, uh, joy and wonder, the path toward getting to joy is, is through and th- by, by embracing that, that being a human being is a tough gig, you know, that, that <laughs> I like how you put that. <laughs> it is. It's, it's hard, you yeah. know, uh, that we live, um, you know, it was one of the things that, um, you know, in, in contemplative practice from thousands of years ago, you know, that, that, uh, the sense of that we have to contend with change, that we have to contend with that we are constantly changing. We are constantly aging. We are constantly learning. We're constantly uh, stumbling and getting back up. Yeah. I'd love for you to read a short passage from the book, Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader. Would you do that? I'd love to. So this is maybe just read a couple paragraphs uh, from the epilogue of the book. My experience teaching mindfulness at Google and to companies and individuals around the world is that there is a tremendous need and hunger for understanding and developing greater humanness, openness, and inspiration, not only at work, but in all parts of our lives. Mindfulness practice is potent. It enables us to see more clearly and to engage with the miracle of consciousness, the miracle of being alive. Mindfulness practice can shift the ground of our consciousness, our presence, our being, not by adding something, such as a new belief system or by seeking inspiration, but by presenting a more accurate view of what is, of human nature, and how we construct and constrict our version of ourselves and the world. Everyone wants to leave the endless changes. This is a line from a 6th century verse by Dongshan, the founder of the Soto School in China. Time and change are beyond our usual rational understanding. You are not alone in your resistance to change. Staying with the questions, staying with what is, takes courage. Notice what happens when you fully enter your life, your experience with less resistance. And when resistance arises, great. Notice your resistance. It is a terrific teacher. Hmm. My guest has been Mark Lesser. He is the author of Seven Practices of a Mindful Leader, 
Lessons from Google and a Zen Monastery Kitchen. And once again, those seven practices are love the work, do the work, don't be an expert, connect to your pain, connect to the pain of others, depend on others, keep making it simpler. And Mark, I would add the eighth, show up. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, I think, I think that's the first. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you're right. Show up was the first. Well, well, it's contained within each of them is, right, love the work, show up, do yeah. the work, show up. Yeah, keep showing yeah. up. Keep, keep, keep showing up. <laughs> to learn more about Mark Lesser and his beautiful work, please visit marklesser.net. On Twitter, he can be found at Mark Lesser. And on Facebook, that page is Mark Lesser, Z-B-A. And Mark is spelled with a C, M-A-R-C. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your knowledge and a bit of yourself with us this morning. Thank you. It's been a a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Rich Sheridan and Mark Lesser, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>